there, I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Please note, the content of this podcast may be disturbing as there are graphic descriptions of war, including death. Welcome to the studio today. Uh, My guest is Gary Mackay. He is a retired army officer. He was a colonel. He's a Vietnam vet, an author of 24 books, an historian, and battlefield tour guides. I mean, that is an awful lot for one person. Welcome, Gary. Thanks, Karen. Gary, tell us a little bit about how you came to be in the Army. I was uh, conscripted in 1968 uh, for national service, and um, I didn't want to do that, as it turned out. I tried to dodge the draft by joining the then CMF, now the Army Reserve, But uh, that didn't last very long. Uh, I did about 18 months, but I was getting screwed around by one of the warrant officers in the 7th Field Regiment at Willoughby, and I thought, no, I'll get this over and done with. I'll do my two years and then get out because I was a trainee computer programmer. I wasn't too bad at that. I'd been selected to go to the States to do a programming course, and I thought that would be my future. But... uh, I got sucked into the green machine in uh, May 1968, got selected for officer training at Skyville near Windsor. I did the 26-week pressure cooker course there and graduated as a second lieutenant into the infantry corps. Um, I had to extend my national service uh, by about a year in order for me to complete a tour of duty in South Vietnam. I did that tour of duty, and uh, when I got back to Australia um, in 1973, I was offered a permanent commission in the Army, and I just couldn't see myself going back to being a computer programmer. So I, I stayed in the Army for 30 years. That's a very long time in, in a career. But can you remind us, how were you called up? How was, what was the process for conscription? All men who were turning 20 uh, in a certain period of time had to register through the Department of Labor and National Service. And uh, your registration was then recorded and then they would have every quarter, they would have a birthday ballot. It was like the world's biggest truck raffle. <laughs> and it was done on birth dates. So you hope that you were born on the 29th of February, I guess. <laughs> but um, when if your marble dropped out, you then got a letter saying that you had to go to, in my case, because uh, I lived in Newport, uh, you would have to report to the medical examiner in York Street in the city on a certain day between certain hours and do your initial medical. And uh, once you'd done that, you were then notified when and where you had to report for induction into the Army. And I think a lot of people really, a lot of young men really dreaded that happening, being called up. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had no desire to be in the Army, even though Mum and Dad had both been in the Army during the Second World War and had a lot of army friends from, you know, from the friendships they made during those uh, years during the Second World War. But um, I was playing rugby for St Ives. I was, I had a, I thought I had a career starting off as a programmer. I was rowing for Newport Surf Club and we had a champion crew and we didn't want to break it up. And I was in hot pursuit of a girl from the uh, computer punch card department. And um, 
and, and another I, good reason not to oh, go. <laughs> yeah, you know, and all of a sudden they're going to cut your hair. It was the age of Aquarius, remember? Yep. So everyone had long hair, and anyway, uh, and mine was down on my shoulders. Good grief! And um, yeah, so I didn't want to go in the army. Yeah. Um, well, what year did conscription actually cease? Seventy-three. Seventy-three. So yeah. you went. This was sixty-eight for you. Yep. After you finished your training, where did you go, or when did you go to Vietnam? Okay, I went to Skyville from May to October sixty-eight. I was then posted to the Third Training Battalion at Singleton, which trained national servicemen to be recruits and selected national servicemen once they'd done recruit training to be infantry privates. Uh, it was a large organisation, probably about 1,200 men at any one time undergoing training there. And I got posted there and I thought it would only be about for three or four months and then I would go to Vietnam. But I was a pretty good rugby player. I'd already been a junior rep rugby player with Gordon Northern Districts. And um, I was the captain of the Singleton Army rugby team and uh, we had a coach who was a mad rugby nut uh, who was a captain, uh, who was the adjutant of the unit and uh, he kept me there because he looked after postings in and out of the unit and he kept me there until after we won the grand final and so I, it wasn't until um, late September, early October 69 that I actually got turfed out after we won the grand final, I got sent to Brisbane with only six months of national service to go. Mm-hmm. I graduated before I was 21, so at, you know, even before I had uh, attained my majority, I was looking after a platoon of 35 men uh, and supposedly being able to go to Vietnam and uh, go on operational duty. So... I thought, I've done all this training, I'm ready to go, and they wouldn't send me to Vietnam unless I extended. So I extended because I wanted to see if I could cut the mustard. So a 21-year-old looking after 35 men. Yep. How old were these men? 20, 19 and 20. You, could, you couldn't go to Vietnam <coughs> until you'd turned 19, for the, except for the Navy. You were a very young group of men together and that's a, a huge role to be in charge of a platoon at yep. age 21. Yeah but we were well trained You're to well. do that job. So did you have any idea what Vietnam would be like? Well before I was conscripted I didn't even know which side of the equator it was on and um, I didn't even know what the Vietnam War was about until I'd been conscripted and then I started to take an interest because the odds were looking good to go. I guess from the time I got actually called up, I started to really take notice. And all of our training was directed towards being able to do that job in Vietnam. It was tough training. Skyville was a pressure cooker. Uh, for example, uh, I think a 20-odd men in my class started, but only 53 of us graduated. It was that tough. When you said you were take, you started to take an interest in, in Vietnam and, and its history, where did you research or did the, did the Army give you the means to learn about this place? Oh, no, we, we got lessons and lectures on it. Um, apart from the war fighting aspect, we were also given the background to the war, which, of course, was a great shining lie about why we should be there. Uh, in my opinion, we should never have been in Vietnam. Mm. Um, as a matter of fact, if the French had done the right thing back in 1946-47 and helped Ho Chi Minh attain national unity, uh, there wouldn't have been a war. But the French being the French, they tried to recolonise Vietnam after the Japanese were sent packing after the end of the Second World War. And, of course, the, the growth of communism, the outbreak of the Korean War, Malaysian confrontation, all of that 
um, combined with the Brits pulling out east of Suez uh, in the mid-50s meant that we needed Big Brother in our backyard. And so we asked the Americans to ask the Vietnamese to ask us to come and help them. Mm. And that was the great shining lie. Everyone thought that the Vietnamese asked us, but we wanted the Yanks to ask the Viets because we wanted the Americans in our in our backyard. There's a very long history from when the French took oh, over yeah. Vietnam and mm. you've made me interested in it more so. We've been doing a bit of research ourselves at home yeah. and it's fascinating because I think so many of us in Australia don't really understand the background of Vietnam. Yeah. And, and, and today it's a wonderful tourist de- destination. I'm sure half the tourists that go there do not understand the history. You chose a song today for us. We've got to get out of this place by the animals. What does that song mean to you? Well, when we're at Skyville, this six-month pressure cooker course, every night we would go in for the evening mess in the cadets' mess and one of the uh, senior class had to get up and recite a poem and it had to end with the number of days to go before graduation, right? And then, because we were given half an hour to have a beer, and then we went into the mess. It was about 1,800 hours. And because uh, we had night lectures as well, mm. uh, five nights. It really was a pressure oh, cooker. It was. Yeah, they were long days, including Saturdays up until mid-afternoon. And before we all went in and sat down for the evening meal, and we're in, we're in patrol blues at night, you know, fully regimented, we would belt out, we've got to get out of this place by the animals. And we sang it with gusto every night. I can just imagine that room. How many of you? Well, in my class, uh, before we got down to grad, in, in my junior class there were about 120. In my senior class uh, there were probably about 50 or 60. So this is, we've got to get out of this place by the animals. My guest in the studio today is Gary Mackay. Gary is a retired army officer, a colonel, Vietnam vet, and author and historian. So, Gary, we've been talking about your training and uh, your early days of training and becoming a platoon leader at age 21. Tell us about your posting to Vietnam. Okay. By 1970, I had been posted to the 4th Battalion in the Royal Australian Regiment, and they were based in Townsville. And uh, so I deployed to Townsville. I was living up there uh, in a married quarter, and I got married prior to going to Vietnam to how a girl from Mona Vale. I was going to say, how did you find time to get married? But and yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, Well, I knew her brother from the surf club. Uh. <laughs> And, yeah, we deployed and uh, we decided to get married before going to Vietnam because we got an extra $23 a fortnight marriage allowance. Oh, my goodness. Yeehaw. But remember, I was only earning 5000 a year then as a young officer. Anyway, we were warned for active service and so we're doing all our final workup training. And in uh, April 1971, we climbed on board the Navy's slowest ship, the HMAS Sydney, and took us 10 days to go from Townsville to Vung Tau, which is our port in South Vietnam, near, near our area of operations. We spent 10 days at sea. We did training on board this converted aircraft carrier, now a troop ship. I ran the rifle shooting off the back of the ship because I was a qualified marksman and shooting coach. And we... We're standing on the flight deck of the HMAS Sydney and a Chinook helicopters came in, unloaded the battalion that was coming home and our battalion, which is about 800 men, we climbed into uh, Chinook helicopters and flew to our base in Nui Dat. And it was hot, it was humid. We were used to that from Townsville, but it just seemed to be more intense and it was the end of the dry season and it was pretty bloody hot. And we flew into our base uh, over this pockmarked landscape below, which was just full of shell craters, and landed at Nui Dat. 
loaded onto trucks and taken around to our lines, our tent lines, on the perimeter of the base at Nui Dat. And from there, we started about 14 days of familiarisation, climatisation, being taught all of the uh, new rules of engagement that we would have to apply, uh, getting used to the change in minimum safety distances for calling in uh, artillery, mortars, all sorts of uh, weaponry from the sky, rockets, machine guns, you name it. So we did a lot of that before we actually deployed out on operations. Do you remember what the atmosphere amongst the men, the feelings, the emotion was like in those first 10 days when you landed and then the training? I think it was a combination of apprehension and excitement. For 20-year-old blokes loaded with testosterone, trained to do a job, it was exciting. Uh, But it was also a little bit scary because it wasn't a game anymore. We mm. weren't firing blank rounds. We're, we're now on what they call the two-way range where the other people were firing back at you. So after 10 days, you were trained well enough to go out and, and really do the job? That was fine-tuning. All of our training had taken place beforehand. See, the difference between the Australian and the American soldiers who went to war is that my platoon of 35 men had really been together for almost a year Mm -hmm. before we went. So we knew each other intimately. We knew everyone's strengths and weaknesses. We knew who was best to be the radio operator, who was best to be a machine gunner, who were the guys who were going to be the the blokes that would be the scouts that would rotate through probably the scariest job of all of leading a platoon in single file through the jungle. So we had all that down. The, the acclimatisation period in when we first arrived was fine-tuning. And so when you went off to battle for the first time, when you were sent out as a platoon, was it long before you encountered the enemy and what sort of happened? You didn't know what to expect. There was no front line. The enemy were everywhere and anywhere. And so we would be given an area of operations for our company of 120-odd men And each platoon of 30-odd men would have an area to search. And we went for a couple of weeks without a contact with the enemy. And every day the little string just got tightened a bit more on... It was like an over-tightened guitar string. And will today be the day that we have a contact? And then when we did have a contact, it probably lasted all of a minute. That was it. That's it. And... Once the enemy realised, it was only a small group of about four or five guys, once they realised how many of us there were, they bolted Mm. uh, because they were never going to win the firefight. So Mm. they stumbled into us, as it turned out. The first contact, no result. But not long after, we had another one and we killed a young enemy Viet Cong soldier. And it was on that occasion that my platoon sergeant, who was only four years older than me, but he'd already done a tour of Borneo, Malaya and one tour of Vietnam because mm-hmm. uh, he was a regular soldier who'd joined the army when he was 17. Daryl Jenkin, my sergeant, said to me, get the guys to come and have a look at the body before we bury him. And the reason he, did, he suggested that was to drive home the point that this is what happens in war. Yep. And it's gruesome. And no one said anything. It was quite a sombre experience. Yep. But the guys then realised, okay, this is why we've got to keep our facial camouflage up. This is why we've got to watch our arcs. This is why we've got to be alert and not switch off. And, and the biggest battle you fought in, Nui can you describe a bit of that battle for us? Well, it was late September 1971. And that's the year you actually landed. It was the same yeah, year. Yeah, it was towards the end of the tour. We did a whole tour of duty. We had done six months. It was going to be a short tour anyway because of the, the withdrawal from Vietnam that was announced in August of 71. Where Everyone was going to be out by December 71, except for my company, which was going to be there till March 72 as rear protection while everyone packed up. But... Uh, 
the North Vietnamese decided to come back into the province and give us a kick up the backside before we pulled out. And they were heading down towards our base at Nui Dat. And so we deployed into the field and on the 20th of September, my platoon ran into a, a platoon of North Vietnamese Army people from the 33rd Regiment and we had a, uh, a long contact with them. End result was we killed four and the rest took off. But the sign that they'd been there in numbers was evident by the track, which was it indicated at least 200 enemy mm. had moved down that pathway through the bush. Anyway, we buried those young fellas. Uh, they had no idea on them at all, but from their equipment clothing and the way their stuff was maintained, it was pretty obvious they were North Vietnamese Army or NVA, as we used to say. The next day we moved off from our overnight location. We didn't have a, we didn't cook any food because we knew there were enemy in the area, so we're rigged for silent running, just cold meal, and uh, as a matter of fact, that was the last day of our resupply, and uh, we were almost out of water and almost... I think, yeah, we were just about out of food and we'd used about a third of our ammunition up in the contact on the 20th. We moved in about five or 600 metres up the, paralleling this track heading towards the feature known as Nui Lay and we saw another track coming in that converged with it and it was just as big as the other one and it indicated that they were carrying heavy equipment because branches each side of the track were broken. Mm. My platoon then stopped, went into all-round defence. We sent in a track report, and just as we're doing that, 12 platoon, as part of Delta Company, to about two clicks to our west, got into heavy contact. My platoon, 11 platoon, were told to stay where they were. Uh, and while we did that, we knew the enemy were in the area, so my guys just started getting all their spare ammunition out of their backpacks, into their basic pouches, making sure everything was tickety-boo, and all of a sudden we got assaulted uh, from low ground coming up onto our position by about 60 enemy, and uh, and we only had about 30 on the ground. But I'd laid out a bank of Claymore mines, and I fired those Claymore mines, which broke up their assault, and uh, the enemy withdrew, uh, taking their dead and wounded with them. I then flipped the platoon on one corner so that we weren't in the same position if they came back. And sure enough, 20 minutes later, they did come back, but we caught them on fillet. In other words, we hit them with flanking fire. Didn't kill as many on the second one, but we beat them off again. We were then told to join the rest of the company because 12 platoons contact had finished, but they'd lost one killed and four wounded at that stage. Mm. So we joined company... And then uh, it was fairly evident the enemy there in huge numbers. And uh, as it turned out later on, we found out we were probably outnumbered about 8 or 10 to 1. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we got the word that we would go into this bunker system. But we had no tanks. We had just artillery and air support. And away we went. After about 30, 40 metres, the sky fell in. The noise was incredible mm. and uh, we held our ground and we tried pepper potting forward to get behind good cover and it was all in primary jungle mm. and it didn't take long for me to realise that my machine guns weren't firing in my assault sections because we were the right forward assault platoon in this formal company attack. I looked up, I couldn't, people couldn't hear a word I was saying because of the noise. There were grenades going off, RPGs slamming into trees, artillery going off in the background, and their gunfire was just horrific. And I looked up and I could see my machine gunners slumped over the machine gun. So I ran forward and found they'd both been uh, shot to death. And so I took over the machine gun to stop the enemy from overrunning us. Luckily, a soldier saw me doing that and he ran forward and recovered the other machine gun where one of the gunners was 
dead and the other one was mortally wounded. And uh, between Kevin Casson and myself, we thwarted uh, the enemy assault that was coming on to our position. We held that for quite a while and then uh, we got the word to pull back. Uh, that's when I had to make the toughest decision I had to make. I had to leave my three dead on the battlefield mm. because to try and bring them back would have just cost more lives. Mm. So we did a fighting withdrawal, which was interesting because we'd never practised going backwards. Yeah. And so we, we did a fighting withdrawal and pulled back into company. We put our mortally wounded soldier on a stretcher and chopped him up, well, winched him up through the jungle. But uh, Ralph died on the helicopter on the way to the hospital and he was the last Australian to die on active service in South Vietnam. This was the last major engagement of the Vietnam War for Australians. So we thought that was the end of it. We're going to have to pull back about a kilometre, hit the place with B-52s that night, then go back in the next morning and see what was left. But when we withdrew in very fading light, we withdrew into the guard bunker system of this complex. So we found ourselves surrounded on three sides uh, for the remainder of that after, late afternoon until about nine o'clock at night when the enemy finally with, they withdrew. Uh, but we were firing fire mission danger close to Keep at Bay with our artillery. And that was basically the end of the battle about 9pm that night. Started about nine o'clock in the morning. Gosh. Went through to nine o'clock that night. Must have been absolutely exhausting, but the adrenaline probably just keeps you fired up. It wasn't physically exhausting, it was mentally Mentally exhausting. exhausting. So uh, another song you chose for us today, Run Through the Jungle. I don't know, is it worth me asking why? But it's by Credence Clearwater Revival. Well, what happened was uh, it was was halfway through the tour and we were told we were going to be picked up from one area of the province and taken across from the west to the eastern side of the province because there were bad guys over there that they needed tracking down. So an American uh, helicopter company came in and picked our company of infantry up and flew us across to the landing zone on the other side. It was about 30 k's away. And being the platoon commander, I jump in, they give you a set of headphones... And you jump in the chopper, there's no seats, you all sit on the floor, mm. you link arms and you fly at treetop level, flat jack, because it's harder to shoot you down if you're flying low. And uh, all these pilots have got, excuse the expression, they've got balls as big as watermelons <laughs> because they'll come in anywhere and pick you up under fire and... Take like, and these guys are only twenty twenty one. Yeah, these young pilots, amazing. But pilots. that's all they know how to do. So I sh- I shove the headphones on because they said, "Who's the leader?" And I went me, and I put the headphones on, and lo and behold, Creedence Clearwater Revival are in the headphones. Well, let's enjoy the song, Gary. My guest today is Gary Mackay, Vietnam vet, and we were just talking about his experiences in Nui Lai and we got to where he was ferried out in a helicopter. Gary, what was the next thing that happened? Well, we pulled back into this uh, night defensive position and it was everything in the shop window, probably only 50 metres from one side of the perimeter to the other, where we were fighting for our lives and we were very low on ammo at this stage even though we'd had an airdrop earlier in the day of ammo. Um, but we'd been, very, we'd been husbanding our ammunition because, as they say in the classics, it was a target-rich environment. There were so many enemy there. And we were keeping our heads down, and there was green tracer, the enemy tracer, zipping over our heads. And then at about 8 o'clock, I think, I got hit with two AK-47 bullets, I heard this loud bang and I thought it was an RPG hitting the tree but it turned out to be the shockwave going through me from two rounds hitting me in the left shoulder and chest. So I was then dragged back into the middle of the position and I spent a very long night with my medic and stretcher bearer making sure I didn't bleed to death. Mm. Sitting up, it was a long night. Nine o'clock the next morning I got choppered out. 
on a jungle penetrator and got slammed into a tree, which didn't do me a lot of good, and landed at the first Australian field hospital in Vung Tower and had blood put back. I lost about half of my blood and then spent about a fortnight in uh, Vietnam before I was then medevaced back to Australia on a, on a special RAAF uh, Herc, Hercules aircraft. And that was the start of about a year in hospital uh, because I had so much bone damage and every time they opened me up, I burst into infection. So I um, had my left shoulder arthrodes. I spent six months in a plaster cast and, a, and an inmate at the first military hospital at Yoronga in Brisbane. And then after that, I uh, returned to duty and it wasn't long after that that I was offered a permanent commission. And then I ended up spending the total of 30 years. It was during my time in the army that I ended up being posted to the Royal Military College at Duntroon. And we didn't have the Vietnam War on the curricula and some of the cadets are there because it's a four-year course for the cadets. Some of the cadets said um, things like, my dad was in the Vietnam War, when are we going to learn about it? To which the Director of Military Arts, the guy looked after that, said, Righto Mackay, give them a three-period presentation on what it's like to be a platoon commander in the Vietnam War. So I got together a light and sound show and told the cadets what it was like to be a platoon commander in Vietnam. And at the end of that, the academic staff, because we're part of the faculty of the University of New South Wales, said, Gary, you ought to put that in a book. And that was when I wrote my autobiography, which only covered three years, but it was really about what we're talking about today, which was the first three years of my life in the Army. And so I wrote In Good Company and became a bestseller. And it was the first autobiography by an Australian on the Vietnam War, and it broke the ice for a lot of other veterans to write their stories as well. And this book became really a textbook, is that correct? Oh, that's true. It, it was used at the Royal Military College, the Officer Cadet School at Portsea. All of the Army Reserve Training Group, Officer Training Units use it. The Marine Corps use it. Yeah. New Zealand Officer Cadet School used it. Yes, it was, I think it even went as far as uh, Mons in the UK. But it became a textbook and as a result, my publisher said, well, you better write another book. So I wrote an oral history, which was the Western Hemisphere's largest oral history on Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And that came to the attention of the War Memorial. And they then offered me a John Trelaw research grant to write a book. And so I used that money to study Vietnamese at the School of Modern Languages. And then I funded my way back to Vietnam in 1993 and went and interviewed the enemy, the former enemy. And how was interviewing the enemy? Did you gain really great insights into their their side of the war, their opinions? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was fa- I, was, I was apprehensive when I landed because, you know, the embargo was still in place until Bill Clinton lifted it a couple of years later. And at Saigon Airport, people were still wearing the same gear and carrying the same weapons that I'd last seen in 1971. So I'm thinking, oh, what's going on here? And I was still serving in the Army. So, yeah, I was apprehensive. But once I got to speak to the people, I realised I had nothing to worry about. I was treated with respect and with warmth, which really astonished me. And I actually uh, asked a former Viet Cong soldier in a place called Long Dien, who was the chairman of the People's District Committee, and it's like the Shire Council, I said, why do you treat me like this when I invaded your land and blah, blah? He said, four reasons, Gary. He said, you buried our dead, you took care of our wounded, you tried to do something for the people of Fuktui province, and you did not commit atrocities. And so the Australian soldier was held in high regard by the former enemy. Mm. And... When I learnt about how they did their training and what they had to do and how they had to live, I hadn't 
Well, we always had great respect for them. If you don't respect your enemy, you're going to get your backside kicked. Mm. And and I think that was the thing my company commander taught all of us because he'd already been to Vietnam. He said, you know, if you don't... He used to call the enemy Charles because they were called Viet Cong or VC and that's phonetically that's Victor Charlie. So everyone, the Yanks often called them Charlie, but my company commander always called them Charles. He said they deserve more respect. Gary, you've just written recently a new book, After the Blood Cools, The Warrior's Dilemma. I've read the book and I've learnt a lot. Tell us about this book. When I started doing tours in Vietnam... This is Battlefield Tours. Yeah, with Matt McLaughlin. I was taking four tours a year back to Vietnam and in 2004... I was on tour. I'd just finished a tour and I was helping uh, the People's District Committee up in a place northwest of us at a place called Tanyuen where the huge battles called Coral and Balmoral were fought and I was helping them find a mass grave. And the local copper there, paramilitary policeman, uh, looked at my paperwork t- to go into this sensitive site and didn't like it. And he hated Caucasians, so he threw me in jail at gunpoint for the day. And that, that would have triggered, been fun. And that triggered off what eventually became diagnosed as post-traumatic stress. And that was 33 years after the event. That's incredible, isn't it? Right. Who so would think? Fast forward to COVID, and a couple of years ago, uh, Matt said to me, would I do a book for his publishing company called Living History TV? And I said, yeah, and he wanted me to write about a certain thing, a certain battle, and I, I was apprehensive about doing that. And I just didn't want to regurgitate what had already been done. And then I was made aware of the appalling number of suicides of young Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans, mm-hmm. which was appalling. And I thought, no, I'm going to write about the warrior's dilemma, which is... We send them into a war zone, into an abnormal environment where people are trying to kill each other. Mm -hmm. Then we bring them back home and expect them to just reintegrate back into society. And people, I don't think, really appreciated the stresses that soldiers, sailors and airmen go through when they're in a war zone. And I'm talking about things like... Fear, terror, uh, shock from the noise and sounds mm. of battle, horror at what you see, what happens to humans when they get wounded or killed, and then finally grief. So you've got all these stresses playing on you, and you might be physically fit and well trained to do your job, whatever it is, but nothing can really prepare you for the mental tra- trauma that you go through. And I never got any training on it, and I don't think many other people have since. Mm. They are addressing it now, but what I wanted to do with the book was to shine a light down into that dark place where warriors are asked to go. Mm. And and I wanted to do that for quite a few bunches of people. One, I wanted to show the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans that they're not alone that, you know, we've, we've all done it, we've all experienced it. It's not unusual if you feel the way you feel because of what you've been through. Then I also wanted them to be able to give it to their partners, friends, family, so they would understand what they had been through, even though they would have their own stories. Mine would be fairly indicative of, the, of what happens on the field of battle. Mm. And finally, for the Department of Veterans Affairs and all the people who train, our people who go in harm's way, read this and understand what we are asking people to do. Yep. So that was, that was the whole purpose of the book. Right. So you talk about, well, memories are hard to erase. How do you, you can't erase them, can you? You can't unsee what you've seen. How do you deal with that? Well, you know, it's interesting. 
until I had my own incident in 2004, I had forgotten or deliberately pushed to the back of my head some of the things that happened to me at Nui Lai. For example, when I ran forward to recover the machine gun, it was in the open. I actually had to use the bodies of my dead soldiers as cover from fire. Mm. And I've got to tell you, that was pretty awful. Yeah. And But until I had my own episode and I went and got debriefed by a psychiatrist, he dredged that back up and I had deliberately kept it pushed down. So I, it, was like a, it was like my own pressure cooker building up over the yeah. years. And the thing I guess I can best answer that with is you can't unsee what you've seen. You can't. The smell of what happens on the battlefield is all pervasive. If you think a dead kangaroo on the side of the road is bad, nothing is as bad as a dead human being Mm. or a rotting corpse. Mm. And as I said, you can't unsee what you've seen. So what you can do is take those images, put them in a little box and put them at the back of your brain and file it away and only call on it when you need to. And hopefully you won't need to. Mm. And if it does, yeah, okay, look at it, accept it, big deep breath, count to ten and refile it. Uh, Or go for a walk. Or or do what I do sometimes. If the black dog, you know, my wife will often say to me, black dog in the room, and I'll go for a walk along the beach with her. Yeah. And we'll talk about something totally different. Yeah. Usually... And that involves me doing something around the house, you know, something else that needs to be done. Not ignoring it, though, but yeah, just... find a distraction. Yeah. I mean, it would be dead easy for me to work myself up into a tiz if I wanted to, but I don't wish to. Well, you've um, chosen one more song for today, Resurrection Shuffle by Ashton, Gardner and Dyke. Yep. Come on, okay. tell us the story. Okay, well, I'm, this is, I'm still in Vietnam. Uh, I've been chopped out and I, they've pulled the bullet out of me and one of them kept going and I'm laying in bed sitting up and this is about day three or four after I've been wounded and on that day we'd lost five killed and 24 wounded so all the wounded are in this ward that they had to reopen because we were withdrawing so they'd already closed down one of the wards mm. and they had to reopen it so all the guys from 4RAR are in there My sergeant was in there, he got hit through the arm and two other platoon commanders were there and I think I was probably the worst of the lot. But I'm sitting up in bed uh, with my arm bound to my chest so it wouldn't move because my shoulder was totally dislocated and everyone's going off to the mess hall for breakfast. Now a lot of the guys had shrapnel wounds, right? And so they've been opened up the shrapnel's been removed and they've been stitched back up and they're, and they're bruised and battered from being hit with mortars and all, mm. all sorts of things. And they're shuffling off to breakfast <laughs> just as the Australian Forces Vietnam radio came on and played this song. And I started laughing because it was, it was so ironic and so funny that the resurrection shuffle be on when these guys who'd nearly been killed were shuffling off to breakfast. My guest in the studio today is Gary Mackay. He's an author, battlefield tour guide, retired army officer, colonel, Vietnam vet. So, Gary, what advice have you on not loitering in the past and moving forward? Oh, it's It's essential. My own Vietnam Veterans Association have a, a motto along the lines of, you know, look ahead, but remember the fallen. Remember the past, but go forward, look ahead. And, you know, the people in Vietnam are like that. They don't look back. They try not to look back on their troubled past. They mm. just want to look forward and make life better for themselves. It's no good loitering in the past. You can remember it mm-hmm. and honour those who you serve with, etc. But life is for living. And that's right. And, and loitering in the past is often what causes depression. It's not a, a good place to be. No. 
Learnings from the war. What has been learnt from the Vietnam War and used in Afghanistan and Iraq? Okay, well, I think the first thing was our political masters have finally realised that support for the Defence Force, when they are shoved into an area as part of an extension of our foreign policy, whatever it is, must have bipartisan support. You can't have one side of Parliament saying, go for it, and the other one saying, this is a bad idea. That is what happened in Vietnam, and it tore the country to, right up the guts. And it, it was awful. It, was, it divided the country. So if you're going to make a decision to go to war, make sure it's bipartisan support. I think the other thing was a tour of duty of 12 months um, was deemed to be too long for our special air service guys, our, our special forces. And because we have a lot of those sort of forces being used these days in Afghanistan and Iraq, they decided to make the tour of duty six months. Mm -hmm. Now, that's what we wanted in, in Vietnam, but we didn't have enough people to do it. And even SAS guys who served in Vietnam will tell you, after nine months they were totally burnt out mm. and because of the stress of the job. The trouble is, when we went to Iraq and Afghanistan... Our army had been shrunk back to what it was before the end of the Vietnam War and consequently we had kids who were doing six, seven, eight tours of duty. That's like four years in a war zone. Yeah, not and, and that's why I think a lot of them had the problems they did when they came back and a, a Department of Veterans Affairs who were not totally sympathetic to our cause, to their cause didn't give them the support, and that's why I think a lot of kids ended up taking their lives. Mm. I think the mental training is now being addressed, but I think the other thing that is becoming more and more um, looked after now is debriefing. Mm. When people come back from an operation where something has happened that they are debriefed, they can vent, and they learn how to treat that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think I think they're the major lessons. So a big part of your life now is the battlefield tours, particularly Vietnam. These are run by Matt McLaughlin. It's a well-known tour company. Tell us a bit about how these battlefield tours play a part in your life. Well, um, for the last 25 years I've been doing it, minus COVID, uh, but hopefully we'll start up again in March next year. They're a big part of my life because it gives me an opportunity to show Australians and take veterans back about how Australians fought the war because a lot of Australians who went to Vietnam had no idea what the Navy or Air Force were doing if they were Army and vice versa. But I also show people on our tour how the enemy fought their war and I blend all that in because I have a a local tour guide that I work with, and the bloke I last worked with called Tor, T-H-O. Tor is a brilliant orator. He is a great narrator, and he, he gives a really good abbreviated history of Vietnam, the last 2,000 years, of which most of it was under Chinese control. Then when they kicked the Chinese out of the country, there's no one the Viets can't beat, by the way, um, when they kicked the Chinese out, then the French came. So they they had the French for a hundred odd years. When their language was actually the Vietnamese language is only a couple of hundred years old. They then had the what they call the American War, and now they've finally got their peace. But I try and blend the bat the Australian battlefields. We go to central Vietnam and we learn about the history of that, the old imperial capital of Hue, and I show them the places where the Americans fought and then up onto the DMZ and what it was like there and then up in, finally up into Hanoi and we get the Ho Chi Minh bit. And underpinning all of that, of course, is a fantastic Vietnamese cuisine, which varies from area to area. Mm, mm. And so... We try and blend all that in. It's not just the battlefields and blokey stuff. There's a lot of history, culture 
and the cuisine. And I can see you have a bit of a love for it now. Oh, yeah. I love, I love going back. I mean, apart from the fact that I've got a lot of friends there now, Vietnamese friends. That's I, ironic, isn't it? I learn something every time. Yeah. Well, Gary, thank you so much for the interview today and good luck with the book After the Blood Cools, The Warrior's Dilemma. I have read it and I did learn a lot and today has been quite a history lesson for me. So thank you. You're welcome. Cheerio, everyone. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, aging is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside There's a sparkle in your eye It's not all nine to five It's a wonderful life Let's go and climb mountains Swim across oceans This treasure that you've got to find, baby, don't be shy. Let's go and take that ride. Taste the sweet and the spice, everything else. Let your heart be alive, baby, just let your heart come alive, honey. Let your heart be alive.